reminds you, most weeks, if you do not have a handout yet, they're on the table in the back or on the music stand by this store. So I'd encourage you to get one of those. It'll help you follow along. I hope you're all having a great week tonight. I am looking forward to continuing our series of how to understand the Bible, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. I am encouraged every week with you being here. So just quick review of kind of where we're at in our study here. We talked about the foundational weeks of, of what do we do as we approach the Bible. We looked at a lot of things, but particularly what do we do as we approach the Scriptures. And we talked about the importance of letting the text convey the meaning, of looking back at authorial intent, of what was the author trying to communicate so we can understand that. And we said we read it in context and we ask questions of the text and we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We talked about the role of depending on the Holy Spirit. Remember, He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who inspired the authors. And He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who illuminates the text for us to give to us understanding. And as such, then, we approach the Scriptures with prayerfulness because we need the Lord in that. And so I encourage you to look at Psalm 119. If you're not sure how to pray over the Scriptures, Psalm 119 is a great guide for us because it talks about the heart longings we should have for the Word of God and asking God to grant those to us. And we having eyes to see the Scriptures, to have minds to understand, a will to obey. And so to let Psalm 119 be a guide for us of how we prayerfully approach Scripture. It talks about the role of approaching Scripture in community. That most of the commands in the scripture related to how we approach the Bible are not me and Jesus, but it's us in community talking about the word of God together. And so the role of, of our friends and our church family in understanding scripture. It talks about understanding cultural context and trying to not let our cultural biases, our cultural norms color how we see scripture. And then we talked about, as well, understanding genres. And that's where we pick back up tonight. So just to remind you of what is a genre. It's there on your, your handout. It's a class or category of artistic endeavor having a particular form, content, technique, or the like. It's often relating to a distinctive literary type. And so just to remind you, when you approach Scripture, there's not just one genre of Scripture. There's lots of genres within the Scriptures themselves. And so each of those genres have rules, have principles for how we understand them. We talked about last week that we're always interpreting genres, whether or not you, you get the email that says your water's being cut off if you don't pay by tomorrow. Well, we interpret that a certain way versus congratulations, you've won millions, give me your bank account number. You know, we are always identifying genres of things, and so we do that with Scripture as well. We need to understand what the author intended to say, and we can't do that without understanding the genre in which the author wrote. So last week we talked about historical narrative, which is one of the largest genres in Scripture. Tonight we pick up with poetry. Because poetry is found throughout the scriptures. We think of normally the Psalms, but it's found throughout all of scripture. In fact, the genre of poetry is woven into the Proverbs. It's woven into historical narratives, like we talked about last week. It's woven into prophecy. And so you find poetry, not just in the Psalms, so we'll focus in on that towards the end tonight, but it's throughout all the Bible. In fact, if you go to the Gospels themselves, there's over 220 poems within the Gospels. Not necessarily poems like we think of them as big but but poetic phrases that are put in the Gospels. 220 just within the Gospels themselves. So that raises our first question for tonight. Why did the biblical authors use poetry? Why, why would they use poetry? My guess is most of you probably don't write a poem when you email your friends saying you want to go to dinner tomorrow night, right? And most of us are probably not writing poems. Maybe a few of you wrote poems for your spouse yesterday, but most of us do not normally communicate with poetry. So why did the, the biblical authors use poetry? Number one, I'm giving you three reasons. Number one, it was a common way for people to express themselves in biblical times. Again, we don't necessarily do that today, but it was very common in the biblical times to use poetry to express oneself, to express emotions. We think about it back in biblical times, they didn't have little you know, emojis they could put next to their little text they sent out to help you convey what they're feeling. So they would use poems to express themselves. Number two, why the authors use poetry to arouse emotion in us, the reader. 
again, the authors have a meaning that they're trying to convey to the people who are reading it then and now. And so they use poetry to, uh, to arouse emotion with us. They're not going for our minds at first. They're going for our hearts at first. And so just listen to this. If you want to hear an example of how the author might try to use poetry, if you're working through First and Second Samuel and you're in the middle of Second Samuel, you come to David describing the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. Well, he could just go straight for our mind and be like, they died. Kind of like a basic obituary. Well, that doesn't arouse the affections of our heart. But listen to this. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. And he goes on. That was from 2 Samuel chapter 1, 23 through 26. What is he doing there? Instead of just showing us in something in just normal narrative form, he jumps into poetry to arouse emotion when you can feel the pain of the loss and you feel what's going through. So the author uses it to create emotional feelings within us. And we'll talk more about that. Number three, not only does, is it a common way to express himself, not only was it a way to arouse emotion in us, but number three, it makes it memorable. The authors use poetry to make it memorable. Back in the biblical days, they did not have their tablets to take their notes on. They didn't have little nice little binders to carry with you. They didn't get sermon note inserts when they gathered together under the tree. You know, they didn't have the forms that we often use today to remember things by. So it was much more of an oral society back then. And so oral societies learn with stories. They learn with poems. And the poems help make it memorable. And friends, we're not that different. I mean, if I asked you what was the main point of the sermon three weeks ago... You probably couldn't tell me because most of us don't remember just statements. But if I ask you, hey, that song on the radio that's really popular, you may not have heard it in four weeks. Tell me what the song is. You'll probably still sing it today. Because our songs are often like modern-day poems in a lot of ways. And we remember those. Poems are memorable on that. And so, for example, David could just say the heavens all or, or all of God's creation tells us about who he is. Well, that's just kind of a statement. Or he can go into Psalm 19 and say, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Night after night, day after day, force, force, speech. Night after night displays knowledge. And it's a much more poetic way of helping us understand. And we can remember that a lot better than just statements of truth. One of my favorites as well is I try to help men get ready for marriage when they're pursuing a girl or they're interested in pursuing a girl towards the marriage in view. So I can try to help them. You need to find a woman who has wisdom. And I can try to beat that into their heads over and over again. Like, guys, it's not just appearance. You need a woman who's godly who has a sermon who has wisdom. I can tell them that. They may not remember it, but they're not going to lose this image from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's, a, it's an image for us. It's a poem. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Why? It's a poem that was designed to be memorable to make a point to the men who were listening to that. And so the biblical authors had good reason for using poetry. So the question becomes for us, if you turn the page, how do we recognize poetry? How do we recognize poetry, particularly in the Bible, but just in general, before we even think about poetry in the Bible? How do you recognize poems? If I stood up here and told you this, see if you think it's a poem. This is one of my kids' favorite things they, they like to hear. Ooey gooey was a worm. A mighty worm was he. He climbed upon the railroad tracks, the train he did not see. Ooey gooey. Was that a poem? How would you know that's a poem? It rhymes. There's, there's a rhythm to it. And there's the rhyme, the train he did not see. You kind of hear the flow of it. You hear the rhyming words in here. He and see. There's a meter to it. 
And it's obviously memorable as well, the squished worm on the train track. It's a poem. It's, and we recognize that. Well, how do we recognize it when we come to Scripture in the Bible? Because Hebrew and Greek poetry rarely ever rhyme. So how are we going to identify it as such? And even if, by the way, even if it did rhyme, we'd lose it in the translation. Just if the Greek and Hebrew rhyme doesn't mean the English equivalent words are going to rhyme. So how do we identify it in our English translations? Well, three things to look for when you're recognizing poetry in the Bible. Number one, look for brief, short lines. Usually they're going to be briefer. Instead of just these ongoing sentences like when you're reading Paul that can go on for paragraphs or even pages sometimes, you're looking for just brief, short statements in there. Those are often indications of poetry. The second thing you look for is parallelism. And we're going to talk more about what it means for something to be parallel in just a minute, so don't get hung up on that word. We're going to come back to the idea of parallelism, but the idea of repetition or ideas that are, that are going together on that. And number three, you look for repeated sounds. But wait, I just told you the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. How do we know what the sounds are? Well, we can't in our English translations. So often the, the Bible translators help us out. And so I don't know if your translations look at all like mine. Here's a screenshot of, or a picture from my copy of the ESV. Which, which side is the poem? The right side. Exodus 14 is going to be a description in narrative form. Exodus 15 is going to be a poem. How do we know? Well, the translators helped us out here. They put it in spacing. They put it with space around it. They divide it into short lines. And you look at that and you go, whoa, this is different. This is a poem. And so often the translators help us see that through the spacing of that. And it's fascinating to look at that because, again, Exodus 14 tells us the account of how Pharaoh's army was defeated. And then Exodus 15 retells the same story but in poetic form, side by side. You can see the difference in that image there. So that raises the question, then, how do we understand poetry in the Bible? How do we understand it if it's there and it's throughout all these different genres? And I've got three different main reasons I want you to see of how you can understand poetry. Number one, and this is a little bit of a mysterious thing, recognize that sometimes the poem is God's word to us, and yet sometimes it's people's words back to God. Obviously, all the Bible is God's word to us. You remember 2 Timothy 3.16? That all the scriptures breathed out by God. God gave all the scriptures to us, and it's his words to us. But a lot of the poems, a lot of them are expressions back to God of people's faith or people's concerns or people's frustrations or whatever it might be. And so when you're, when you're reading it, recognize that those all God's words to us. Some of the poems are particularly people's responses back to God. Again, these are going to be descriptive for us. If you think about the descriptive versus prescriptive, these are going to be descriptive very often in what they, and how they are. Second thing we need to understand is we need to look for figurative language. And understand it as such. Look for figurative language. What is figurative language? Figurative language, and we're going to come to this towards the end of our study in about a month or two. We're going to get to a whole night on figurative language, understanding exaggeration and figures of speech in the Bible. And it's going to be a, a fun evening. But for right now, figurative language is descriptive language that is not intended to be understood literally. Descriptive language that is not intended to be understood literally. But we do this in English, right? I might say as I'm leaving tonight to whichever deacon's on duty, hey, would you hit the lights on your way out? Am I asking them to like stand up and take their fist and hit the light? Well, no. It's a figure of language. It's not to be understood literally. If the, if the deacon on duty tonight climbed the ladder and started hitting the light bulbs, I think we'd all be pretty upset, you know, because that's not what we're asking. It's a figurative expression. I'm not expecting him to literally understand. You know, sometimes if you've had a rough week at work, you may go tell your friend or your spouse, and like, hey, how has your day been? Man, I am drowning at work today. We don't go hand them a little life preserver and some floaties and say, well, go back to work tomorrow and be more careful. It's a figurative language. We don't expect them to, to interpret it literally. And they don't, we don't spend them in hand. It's a life raft. We tell them we're drowning at work. 
I guess unless you're on the Coast Guard or something out at sea all the time, then it'll be a whole different understanding. It's figurative language that we're not expected to be understood literally. We do this in all sorts of ways in our language. Language is very expressive, and the Bible itself has figurative language. Again, we, we say we believe the Bible is completely literally true. Yes, that's not in any way diminishing that. But the Bible in its literal trueness uses figurative language that we need to understand as such as being figurative language. And so, for example, back to Exodus 14 and 15 that we were mentioning just a few minutes ago, the difference of it. If you go into Exodus chapter 14, you're going to have very, very precise details. This is not figurative language. This is very much historical narrative. So like in Exodus chapter 14, you're going to see things like, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went to the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall to them on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And on and on the story goes. You're familiar with it. That's, that's not poetic. That is historical, literally true. Then you just go over one column, depending on where it is in your Bible, maybe a page over to Exodus chapter 15. It retells the same thing, but now with metaphorical language. You start hearing things here, like verse 1, where the poem begins. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he is thrown into the sea. Well, did God, like, literally pick them up and see horses go fly? Well, no, it's a figure of language to understand what God has done in that. It's literally telling us what's true, but it's doing so with figurative language. You go into, like, verses 4. The favorite's chair on his host he cast into the sea. Or I love it, verse 7 and 8. And the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You sent out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Well, God didn't literally send fire. He destroyed them by the wall of water collapsing. And he didn't just send fire to destroy them as stubble. What is this here? Is that not correct? Well, no, it's correct. It's an image. Because in the Bible, fire and burning out the stubble is always an image of God's judgment. It's an image to be understood as such. Even go down to like verse 12. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Well, they didn't literally open a mouth and swallow them like in a Star Wars image or something here. Like it, the water's covered over them here. This is figurative language that helps us understand what God was doing in that. And so we understand there's figurative language here. Again, we'll spend a whole week talking more about that later on in our study. Number three, though, look for parallelism. Look for parallelism. Now, this is kind of understanding different types of poetry. There's a lot of technical names, and I'm going to spare us the technical names of it tonight because those don't resonate with me. Perhaps they they do with you, but kind of there's several different forms of parallelism in Scripture as you look at these things. The first one is the repetition of the same idea. The repetition of the same idea. This is the most common form of Jewish poetry, where an idea is repeated in the first line and it's repeated again in the second line. They're dealing with the same subject, so you don't get nitpicky about that. If you remember back in beginning of January, I preached from Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Well, that is a type of parallelism here. That is this type of repetition of ideas. Ask, seek, knock. We're not supposed to get all caught up on is asking different than seeking, is seeking different than knocking. It's a poetic expression here. It's to convey one idea, and that's to pray and to keep on praying. And it's just a form of this type of repetition parallelism. Even in Psalm 19, you're to have the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hand. Day after day, night after night. We don't need to get nitpicky on what the differentiations of those are. It is repetition idea, parallel form to help us convey that God's creation declares his greatness. And so you'll see repetition of the same idea. Again, that's the most common form in poetry. There's a second one you'll see as well if you see letter B there on your handout. And that's the parallelism of contrast. 
This is where the second line contrasts with the first line on this. This is usually where it's just two lines. Occasionally it can be longer, but most of the time it's going to be just one, just, just two lines there. And the important thing with this is realize you cannot interpret one line without the other. If you think about what we talked about with the role of context, you can get in a lot of trouble if you take a contrasting parallelism here and pull one phrase out without looking at it in its context. Here's just one example from the Gospels of this type of parallelism, and it'd be from Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is speaking, he says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit. Now, here's the opposite idea. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, he goes back in. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. There's, a, there's this idea of parallelism of contrast. Good tree, bad tree. Good tree, bad tree. He's trying to show us the contrast between that to make a point to us. The third type of parallelism that happens in the scriptures and poems is the letter C. It's, I, I phrase it, a building or growing of an idea. This is where the second line picks up. And builds an idea. They just repeat the idea, but it gives new meaning to it and greater insight to it. So still in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So there's a statement in and of itself. I've not come to abolish them. But he's not just stop there and repeat it. He's going to now build on it. And next week he says, I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. So it's building on that idea. It's taking it to a greater level in what he is saying. Or again, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, you'll see another example of this. Matthew 10, 40, Jesus says, whoever receives you, receives me. That's a pretty cool statement in and of itself right there. Whoever receives you as his disciples, Jesus is saying, they're ultimately receiving me. But then he goes on, he builds to a higher level. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So it's building in this, in this parallelism here. That if the person receives a disciple, they're ultimately receiving Jesus. But they're not just receiving Jesus, they're receiving God the Father himself. And so you see this progression of the idea. Well, the next form of it, if you turn the page, letter D, the next form of parallelism is, and there's, the only way to describe this is the, is the technical term, that's a chiastic form of this. This is where an idea is repeated. You have an idea, A, it's re- another idea, B, is repeated. Then B is repeated a second time, and then you go back to letter A, if that makes sense. Like A, B, B, A, kind of in the phrasing, and some get complicated and add a third level to that, but most, most of them are just that simple of an idea, a second idea, a second idea is repeated, and the first idea is repeated. Again, you'll find these scattered throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 is one of those as well. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So here, exalting is letter A. Humbling himself is letter B. So A exalts himself. That person B will be humbled. Now let's reverse it. Whoever humbles himself B, back to letter A, will be exalted. So you have this A, B, B, A pattern in that. You can also find that as well back at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 24, Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted and synonym for love to the other and despise the other. So you have hate, love, love, hate, repeated in this kind of chiastic form right there. Another form of it is called plus one. This is not the 1990s boy band, but this is a form of poetry as well. And the best way to explain what I call a plus one form of poetry and parallelism in the Bible is to go to Proverbs and just read you one of them, and I think it'll make a lot more sense. So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. I don't know if you've ever come across this one before. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So there's seven things there, but wait. The Lord hates six things, and now there's seven that are an abomination. Well, which one of those is the abomination? 
Well, you miss the point of it. The whole point is not to get tied up on which, which is the one X one. This is a common form of poetry where you take an, a number X and then you add one to it. It wasn't like the author of Proverbs was writing this out because there's 16 the word hates and he writes them all and he gets to the bottom. He's like, oh, there's one more. Oh, and there's one more that are abomination. He's not like forgetting and adding back to it. This is a very, very common of expression, common poetic form throughout a lot of Semitic literature. The Semitic languages, the Hebrew language and other Middle Eastern languages, a lot of other languages use this type of X and X plus one parallelism. And so when you get into these and you find these in Proverbs, don't get hung up on which one of these is the abomination is greater than the one the Lord hates. That's not the point. The point is it's all an image to help us understand that these are things that displease the Lord on that. Well, one last thing I want to say as far as how you understand the poetry in the Bible. That's number four. Approach it expecting to be moved. Approach it expecting to be moved. These poems are very honest. They cover the range of human emotion. As you read poetry in the Bible, you're going to find things that relate to your experience on this. And so with that, don't overanalyze the words on this. Yes, you want to study what the words mean, but you're looking for big picture. Again, if you get too nitpicky on the particular words, you're going to miss some of the whole flow of thought and some of this parallelism in it. So look for the emotion and try to feel the emotion that the author is conveying. Because poems were written to appeal to your emotions, and then from your emotions they go to your head. The epistles, a lot of the letters, they start there, starts in your head and then hopefully moves to your heart. But the poetry starts at your heart level. And so you to focus on what the author was trying to do with that. Well, that leads us to the song, because if you think of poetry in the Bible, yes, it's throughout the whole Bible, but... There's nowhere that there's more poems than the book of Psalms. Because in the middle of the book of Psalms, you're going to find lots and lots of things. In fact, the largest poetic section of all scripture is the Psalms. It's the largest book of the Bible. There's 150 chapters in the Psalms, which is 150 poems, if you will, that are in the midst of this book. They're honest. They're candid. They cover all the range of human emotion. And to understand the Psalms, not only do you need to do these principles we're just talking about, of looking for parallelism, expecting to be moved to the principles, you have to understand the subgenres. You want to get picky here on this, because the Psalms are not all written the same way. You have the genre of poetry, then under that you have some subgenres. Each of those are understood in different ways. And so there's six different, as I understand, six different types of Psalms. Now, depending on who you read, they're going to see some that may have like 12 or some that have four or five. Some people combine stuff together. Some people separate them out. I'm going to give you at least what I understand to be six big ones. And again, there may be others depending on who you read of how, how you understand. Number one is the lament Psalms, lament Psalms. This is almost one-third of the psalms. These are probably not the ones we go to to, to do our scripture reading in the morning. So the lament psalms are almost one-third of the total psalms for us. This is when the individuals or the communities, both very personal for someone talking to God or the community talking to God on this, but it's when they're crying to God in distress. When life is not going like they wanted life to go and they cry out to God, that's the lament psalms. Almost all the lament psalms are structured the same way. They usually begin first with an address to God. They start by acknowledging God, addressing Him. They then contain a description of the, the need. That's the lament. Oh God, why is this happening? So it acknowledges God, and then it describes the need right after that. Usually it moves to a prayer for help, but not always, but most of the time, and this is important, the lament psalms almost always end with some assertion of confidence in God. And I think too often we miss that. We start reading the lament psalms and we start saying, God, how have you forsaken me? What's going on here? And then we just stop. But at the end of the lament, most lament psalms, there's some type of confession of praise to God or some confession of confidence that God is moving. And so as you read lament psalms, be looking for the honesty of the human experience. If you think it's bad to talk to God about your concerns, your frustrations, what's going on in life, go read the psalms. 
God is not afraid of our questions. We are able to go to him as our father and pour our heart and soul. We don't have to pretend. God knows our heart. We don't need to put on a facade to God, acting like everything's okay when our heart is distressed. So look for the honesty of the emotional experience. But with that, realize that people are not complaining. Too often we read lament psalms and we're like, how is this true to Scripture? You know, Because we're told we're not to complain. We do everything without complaining. Well, it's really a description of a need in a lot of ways and then confidence that God is going to do whatever God can do. And so realize that their distress, their lament, and their faith are complementary. They go hand in hand here. It's not opposed to one another. So, for example, one of, one of the well-known lament psalms would be Psalm 3. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There's this lament. He's telling God, hey, listen, listen. The people around me are thinking that there's no salvation for me. There's no hope for me. And then he goes on, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. There's part of that lament again. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. There you have his lament and his confidence in God all wed together back and forth in this one psalm. So that's the lament psalm. Again, that's about a third of the psalter here. The second type we have is praise and thanksgiving. Now, some people will try to differentiate these as two different things. At least for me, and the way my brain works, they seem very much one and the same. I have a hard time really breaking these apart into subgenres. So I'm putting them together as praise and thanksgiving. What is this about? This is what the name says. You're thanking God. You're praising him for what he's done, thanking him for how he, what he has done. So it usually begins with the introductory praise. And a lot, but not always, but a lot of them will then have an invitation for others to join in the praise as well. A call to other people to come alongside and joining in praising God for what he's done. And then it describes what God has done. And it goes back and it calls again the people to praise God one more time. So one example of this type of praise and thanksgiving psalm be Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. And this goes on for another about 15 verses. These very specific things God has done that they're praising him for, they're thanking him for. And then it ends with, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Those are pretty easy to spot. They're the psalms of praise and thanksgiving. The third type of psalm, the subgenre of this type of poetry, is called the royal psalms. And these get a little bit confusing for us sometimes. The royal psalms are the ones that really deal with God's covenant relationship with the king or with the nation of Israel. And so this is a lot of times where the king is talking about what God has done. Sometimes we call these enthronement psalms because it's the king acknowledging God has enthroned and that God has put the king on the throne. And God is speaking sometimes to his people in this. The thing where these get a little bit confusing is because the king, I think King David here, was in the Davidic line through which the Messiah would come, a lot of these royal, these enthronement psalms have application to the king at the time, but they ultimately are looking at fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so we look at these, we see a little bit of the kind of now-not-yet tension that there's a sense in which this is being fulfilled in the king that God has put on the throne right there in Israel at that time or redemptive history. But there's a sense to which Christ is coming as the king who will be enthroned, who will ultimately fulfill this. Well, let me see if I can illustrate that with an example from Psalm chapter 2. 
perhaps, I don't know if any of you guys have ever listened to the musical group Shane and Shane. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with Shane and Shane. They've, they've done a song that gets sung in a lot of missions conference. Ask and I'll give the nations to you, O Lord. It's the cry of my heart. Anyone know that song? I don't know if maybe y'all been spared on that one. Anyway, it's, it sounds great in the missions conference. Ask and I'll give the nations to you, O Lord. It's the cry of my heart. And people go back and look, it's biblical. We're asking God to give us the nations. It's right here in Psalms. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. And so, so different people have used this verse in missions conferences before. Look, God says, ask and I'll give the nations to you. Because that has absolutely nothing to do with missions. This is not a thing for the church to claim or us to claim individually. This is an enthronement psalm, a royal psalm. For here at the time, for King David, he's reflecting back on the fact that the people oppose him. He recognizes that God is the one who has established him, has enthroned him as king. He says in verse 7, I will tell the decree. Well, sometime in the past, God has spoken a decree to King David, and the decree to King David is, you are my son. Not in the sense of Jesus' son, but you are, he's the son that he's established. This is the Davidic line. He's the king that God has put there. So I've forgotten that if you ask me, and I'll make the nations your heritage. This is the whole idea of Israel to be a light to the nations. This is the whole idea of Israel was to let the nations see the glory of God. Well, again, there's a messianic aspect to this. David could do this in part, but Christ can do this in full. It's the whole idea of ask of the nations to be given as inheritance ultimately belongs to Christ. It's not my job to ask Jesus to give me the nations as part of my inheritance. Jesus has already received them. Jesus has already received the inheritance of the nations. It's our job now, knowing that Jesus receives the inheritance of the nations, it's our job now to make him known. So this is not a missions psalm, as is often sung or done. It is actually an enthronement psalm about the king of Israel at the time or in history, but also looking to what Christ had done. Number four, Another genre of psalms here is wisdom psalms. These are hybrids of both kind of what you find in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and psalms put together. And so the wisdom psalms, and we're not going to spend much time on these because we're going to get to, to wisdom literature next week on this. But wisdom literature, wisdom psalms here are going to either be an acknowledgement of the source of life and wisdom, where it comes from. So even Psalm 1 has elements of being a wisdom psalm in it. But it also deals, wrestles with injustices in life. When you get into, and again, there's going to be overlap in some of these genres, but one of my favorite psalms in all of the book of Psalms is Psalm 73. Because I love the honesty. It's written by a guy named Asaph, who was kind of like the worship leader to King David. And in this, he's wrestling with injustices in life. At one point, he's talking about why do the wicked prosper. So he says in Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he's wrestling with God of why the evil prospers so much. Again, this pouring out, honestly, of emotion on that. And so wisdom psalms can be not only what is the source of wisdom, but it can be with people wrestling with the application of wisdom and injustices and trials in life. And we'll talk more about that whole idea of wisdom literature next week. Number five, the penitential psalms. These are penitential penance, the idea of repentance is kind of what we're getting at in this. These are the ones to where the psalmist is crying out because of sin. And asking God for mercy. Probably the one that most of us know best of these would be Psalm 51. After David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, he records for us his confession. 
And friends, if you're struggling with sin in your life and you're struggling with even how to stir your heart and your emotions to feel repentance, I encourage you to pray Psalm 51 back to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. And he goes on and on with cries of being purged with hyssop. And you know, he says, hide your face from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is David's confession after he committed adultery. And we see his, his repentance before the Lord. Psalm 51 is just one example of a penitential psalm. And the last one is the one that we have a hard time understanding sometimes, the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. This is when you're calling down judgments against enemies on this. And there are a lot of these in there. These become difficult for us because we're like, how do we square these, so to speak, with loving your enemy? And when they're also calling down justice on the enemy. It's the, really, it's the call for God to vindicate his people. And so you see it in different ways. The very next one after Psalm 51 will be one of, one of these psalms as well. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour a deceitful tongue. So he's almost like addressing this person who's done him wrong. And he says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Well, what do you do with these type of psalms? These are psalms of what we call imprecatory psalms. Well, just a few words on these. These are not the person taking justice in their own hands. This is the person in their pain, having been wrong, crying out to the just judge, who's the ruler of all, to do, make things right. It's ultimately the confidence. You know, I recommend this Sunday morning, the book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. In section two of that book, Walking with God Through the Furnace, he, has us, he really helps us see that in, in light of eternity, if we believe that God is just and all wrongs are when they be judged, there's hope for us. Because if there's no God who's going to make wrongs right, then either we despair or, two, we have to take justice in our own hands. And both of those leave us pretty hopeless and with a miserable life. But if we believe there is a just God, we may not be made right today, but there's a just God who is on his throne who will one day make it all right. And that gives us hope now. And so if you look at this particular one, Psalm 52 here, where David is saying things like, God will break you down. Who's he talking about? He's talking about King Saul. This is the one that David said, I will not lift my finger to touch the Lord's anointed. So here's the guy. He's not taking vengeance himself, but the one that David is committed to not to harm, that this man is harming him, is the one that he's crying out to God. God is going to break him down. Because his confidence was not himself having to take justice in his own hands. His confidence was that God, the just judge, would make all things right. So just realize that kind of distinction on that as well. With that said, the other thing that kind of trips us up sometimes on these, these type of imprecatory psalms is that sometimes the author will declare his innocence. And we read that going... I don't relate to that. I'm not innocent. I know I'm guilty before the Lord. When they're declaring their innocence, they're not declaring some type of like ontological like sinlessness in life. What they're declaring is in this particular situation, as best I have done know how, I've tried to do what is right before the Lord. And so they're not proclaiming I'm sinless here. So as you're reading these, and the author says, like in Psalm 73 that I love so much, at one point he says, in vain I've kept my hands pure. I mean, how many of us would feel confident in saying, Lord, I've, I've kept myself completely pure? He's saying the particular trial he's in, he knows he's done right before the Lord. And so he's acknowledging that and then as he's wrestling with, you know, what's happening in life. And so just as you get to those imprecatory songs, realize what is happening with those. So that is a really quick whirlwind overview 
of how we approach poetry in the Bible. And so I'll give you, towards the end of this series, in about a month or so, we're gonna, um, we'll have a night where we talk about resources. I'm going to give you some books and stuff that you, if you want to read deeper on any particular issue that I can recommend to you. So if you're going, I want to know more about parallelism, which I don't know if any of you English majors really like to study parallelism, but if you really are wanting to get into that, I can point you to resources to go a lot deeper. This is kind of a cursory overview of poetry in the Bible. So what we're about to do is divide up into groups like we do most weeks. But here's what I want us to do this evening. It'll be a little bit different than last week. You see on the back of your handout, I've got four things for us to do tonight in our small groups over the next 30, 35 minutes. Number one, I want you to talk about what is the benefit of understanding the type psalm you are reading? So what's the benefit of that? Like what is the, the benefit of taking time to go, am I reading laments or am I reading praise? So how does that help you in our theme, understanding scripture? How does understanding the subgenre of the psalms actually help you understand what you're reading? The next, I thought we'd just kind of fill our minds with Scripture. So we're going to just, in your groups, just quickly read. There's about ten psalms there. And y'all identify the genre. So you can look back over the list here, you know, of the lament, praise and thanksgiving, royal, wisdom, penitential, and imprecatory. And everything is in there once, at least as best I can. I tried in putting this list together. Um, but some of them are in there more than once. So I didn't want you to be able to do a little cross-out. We've done four of the five. We're missing this one. So I made it a little bit trickier for you and gave a few extra. But let your soul be encouraged. You're going to see the range of human emotion as you read these. And so read those. Just someone in your group, read a psalm, and y'all talk about just a minute what it is. And some of these could, may have some crossover. It's not like a perfectly clean cut every time. And so if you see some elements of both, talk about it. And then number three, just to talk in your groups, which type of psalm most expresses your current life experience and response to God? Let's see if you feel comfortable sharing that in your groups to talk about that. Of, you know, where, where are you at here today in your heart before the Lord? Are you crying out to the Lord, you know, because you're lamenting things you don't understand? Are you just full of thanksgiving? Are you really thinking about Christ coming back? Are you, you know, crying out for wisdom or whatever? You're just, which of those types of psalms best kind of describes your life now and how you respond to God? And how does reading and even praying over those types of psalms help you today as you process your life situation? And then I'd like to take a little bit of time at the end tonight. And let y'all pray for one another. The, the, the burdens are heavy in our church body. There's just a lot going on. A lot of you guys carry a lot of burdens and have different things going on. And you don't have to carry this alone. The Psalms are an example of us crying out to the Lord. But I remember, a lot of these Psalms are community-based Psalms. We miss that in our American individualism, me and Jesus. A lot of these are the people of God together lamenting, the people of God together praising. And so I just encourage you, if you feel comfortable in your groups, to... Share, if you have burdens you're sharing or things your heart's just overflowing with thankfulness, share those in your group and take a little bit of time and pray for one another. And so if you want to watch the time, I'd encourage you at least spend the last 10 minutes or so. So take about 20 minutes or so talking through the benefit of understanding the types of psalm, the categorizing the psalms. And then whenever you hit to about 720, if you haven't gotten to the prayer time, just go ahead and stop. You can think of the others later and jump on in and share a few prayer requests and then pray for one another. And so if you just want to kind of divide yourself up into groups like we've been doing most weeks, and we'll go from there in our discussion.